Well, hey, uh, it's another weekend, and it's another episode of The Work Item, and we have uh, another fantastic guest, as we usually do, and we have Rich Lander. Welcome, Rich. Welcome. Yeah, or thank you. I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, when, uh, you know, I started talking on Twitter, and you and I obviously have a, you know, pre-existing relationship before Twitter, certainly before the pandemic, and uh, yeah, so I jumped at this. Sounds Sounds great. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, so, Rich, why don't you tell us first, you know, we, again, we have a lot of listeners that are maybe not as deeply entrenched into the .NET slash Microsoft ecosystem. Tell us more about yourself. What do you do? What do you build? Uh, what do you work on? Yeah, so uh, I've been at Microsoft since uh, 2000, and I, you know, I was fresh out of school at that point. Um, I'm Canadian, so I went to a Canadian university. And... Um, then uh, I actually worked uh, for three years. I'll make this quick, but I uh, worked for three years uh, writing XML-based tools for writers. Um, and then I decided I wanted to do something different. I saw I had started using .NET in that job. Uh, the job I had was kind of like, I would say, three quarters PM, one quarter dev. So I, I wrote a fair bit of code using C Sharp. And I thought, okay, I want to, I want to be part of that thing. And then, so since 2003, I've been on the .NET team. Uh, you know, I, I've thought a number of times about, you know, moving on and doing something different because I've seen a lot of other people do that. And the, the kind of singular reason I've stayed is that I've been able to go both deep and broad um, with that, with that job. Um, because like every release, we kind of focus on either a different Microsoft business or a different topical technology. And uh, and those two things are not divorced, actually. So like, for example, I've been spending a lot of time on containers. And that's obviously like a hot topic. And so I have never felt like I've had to really give anything up by virtue of staying on on this team. Just And it's, it's really because it's a platform in which you're supposed to be able to do anything. So that's the short story. Right, and I think this kind of you cover the the common misconception where folks think of .NET as a Windows thing, and it's mm. definitely no longer a Windows thing. Right, yeah. .NET is cross-platform. You work with containers, you work in the cloud. Yeah, Linux. Yeah. Yeah, Linux. Exactly. Uh, I've been recently writing some .NET Core applications in, on macOS, which is uh, kind of a, a thing that you know, if you look ten years back, I don't think anybody was ready to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I um, in a given day. You know, I use Windows, Mac, and Linux. You know, I have to be able to work in, you know, Bash and PowerShell slash CMD. Um, you know, I, I actually have uh, developed a fair bit of competency in VI um, just because uh, I'm an SSH terminal type person. So, you know, super fun. Um, I, I love working in all those spaces. And... Uh, although I, I will say my competency across several different package managers is not that great. I'm, I'm pretty good with APT, but uh, after you put me into like YUM and DNF and those sorts of things, I have to kind of look at the docs to figure it out. I also used to homebrew. That that's that's the one thing that to me makes my life so much easier. Just brew, <laughs> yeah. brew install. If it's not on brew install, I'm not installing it. Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Rich, so for our listeners, you've been at Microsoft for a very long time uh what is it 20 20, 20 years? years yeah and one of the things we love to understand is kind of one how did you get here two i have a question because when i was doing my research on you i saw obviously you were a beekeeper which is fascinating to me like 
what did you what did you carry over from that job into your uh, PM role, right? Maybe that's digging up things from a long time ago, but um, it's just it was so curious to me. It was like kind of a cool uh, little thing about you that I that I'd seen. Uh, right. So this is a little bit of the the origin story uh, mm-hmm. section. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll start with the beekeeper thing, uh, just because it's the first in time. Um, I guess, uh, so that, that was, uh, hard work. Um, and I, I guess maybe there's two things I might focus on with that. One is, um, my boss made this comment to me. It was, uh, it was in the summer and it was hot and I was like resting. I wasn't, I wasn't working. He's like, he, he actually didn't say, like, you know, you're lazy. Um, he actually made this comment of saying, like, I can't remember the phrasing, but it was like, you need to take pride in your work. And uh, it was one of those things where I couldn't deflect it. I, it's like I couldn't say, like, you're an idiot. I'm tired. Like, <laughs> right. um, And it, that was one of those few comments. It's a little bit like, you know, this teacher who said this one thing to you that one time that shaped the rest of your life. It was a bit like that. And I've never been able to shake that comment. So I totally embrace that. Um, I guess the other thing about that job is there was like the the honey production part of it. And that that was kind of like more the eight to five nature of the job. But then in the, in the spring, we would do pollination work. And so I would usually work the eight to five day doing the honey production part of the job. And then I would come back to his place um, at like nine o'clock at night. And then we would do pollination work till at, at, at the latest 4 a.m. Because you have wow. to move the bees wow. while they're not flying. The bees fly based on the sun. Um, that's how they like triangulate and all those kinds of things. And so they're in the hive kind of by definition. And then you move it uh, to a place where there's like apple trees or some other kind of plant that requires pollination. And um, I think the takeaway from that was is that there are times when you need to put in extra effort to uh, reap the rewards of the situation. So uh, you know, we were working double time because I would work in the day and at night during that period. And but it's an opportunity to take advantage of your natural resource, which is the bees, to both participate in the honey business and the pollination business at the same time. And it's not that's not a all year proposition. It's like a period of like, let's say a month, one twelfth of your year, you have this opportunity. So you basically put in this extra effort to reap that reward. And that's just how it is. And, uh, you know, I've definitely applied that in my work, too. Because, uh, you know, I, I think this work-life balance thing is very, there's definitely a good part of it, clearly. Um, you know, seeing your kids once in a while is a good plan. But I think thinking of that in absolute, like saying I need work-life balance always means you're missing opportunity. So I think there's times to imbalance in either direction. Uh, and if you don't see that, then I think you're missing out. So that's why you keep bursting, ahead. bursting on efforts or bursting on private projects to seize an opportunity is, is a perfectly valid thing to do, but yeah, it's a recipe for burnout if you're constantly doing it. And I think that we see that a lot at Microsoft, you know, there's a lot of conference driven development. There's project driven development. Like we're trying to hit a certain deadline, especially on a product, right? If you're working on a product, there might be an opportunity window that's very tight and it's going to require a lot of effort on a lot of people's parts. So that's cool. 
Yeah, yeah. And plus, in addition to that, you, you end up with, I, I think you kind of hit on an interesting note around work-life balance where you spend so much time at work. I mean, we spend eight days, uh, or sorry, eight hours a day. <laughs> eight days, wow. Eight days, days. wow. Eight days. Like, I wow. knew Amazon was tough. Where'd you get that extra one? <laughs> Amazon gave right. you an extra sorry. day at work. Didn't mean to spill that secret. Um, but yeah, we spend eight hours a day, right? And it's, you, you can't, uh, you know, it, it's not like you shut off your working brain after a certain hour. It's like, you still think about ideas. You still think about like, okay, what if I try this? What if I try this? It's kind of, you know, I, I agree with you with the fact that, yeah, you need to carve out time for kids and your spouse and everything else. But at the same time, like work doesn't just stop randomly. Like it, it just kind of this ongoing process. So that, that's why I, I like the idea of like work-life harmony more so than balance per se. I, I don't know if that resonates with a lot of folks. Well, I think it's, I think it's the duration that's the important part. Right. I think the key point I'm trying to make is disharmony and imbalance for intentionally chosen periods of time is virtuous. It, it's about the, you know, whatever you want your duration to be, a week, a month, a year, that across that period there needs to be balance. Rich, so being imbalanced, you, go ahead. How have you seen that? Like, you know, I'm sure you have uh, plenty of personal stories, but like, what was one of the toughest or most challenging times for you to do that? Do you have a good story for us in, in that regard? And like, how did you manage it, right? Yeah, and well, I mean, from it? usually the interesting stories are the ones where it was mismanaged. You know, I, I think the, the interesting situations are the ones where you know the deadline exists. Uh, you know, it's often the future... And then the question is, are you making the right steps? Yeah, th this actually perfectly pulls it together because say your deadline is six months away, then it means, I mean, I think everyone would agree, you need to be balanced over that six month period because that's way too long a period of time to be imbalanced across the whole thing. So then the question is, is what's the plan you're going to put in place to both achieve the goal and maintain the balance? So, um, you know, I've definitely had some situations where I was not able to achieve that. Like the worst case scenario is you both are imbalanced and don't make the deadline. So literally every single person in this situation, including yourself, is unhappy. Um, so it, this this really boils down to the biting off more than you can chew topic area. Yeah, it's like when people talk, you know, speaking in cliches, it's more of a, like, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? Like, yeah. you have to pace yourself, and depending on how long the process takes to ship something or to deliver something or to plan something, you have to think through what exactly you need to do to make it sustainable and not, like, Courtney referred earlier to burnout, you know, it's very easy to get into the trap of saying, oh, great, I'll work, you know, 17 hours a day, I'll barely sleep, I'll drink a bunch of coffee, we'll ship it in six months, sure. You can do that, but like over the six month period, I don't, I don't think, you know, once you get into that five, six months, kind of the, the boundary between like when you actually need to ship that that's when things start falling apart. Yeah. So I, I think in my, my old age now, uh, I I've just become much more cognizant of like, you know, I've got this deadline in six months actually putting together a plan which doesn't necessarily need to be written down it can be but a uh, plan in my head that i have confidence on in delivering it so 
like the problem, the, one of the biggest problems I have is, uh, which happens continually is in the job I have, like, you know, we have these releases. The biggest thing that we do is new releases. And, uh, the sort of responsibilities I have is I have to do a blog post that's delivered that day. Some of like the, and this is literally happened. Like, um, and then sometimes I have to do a conference talk on the same day. And then, uh, I'm sometimes involved in, uh, problems that occur near the end of the release that have to be sorted out. And I'm also involved in planning for the next release. So these, these, um, periods where we transition from one version of the product to another are super hard for me. And they always have been, um, but I've, be gotten better at um, putting more in the bank. Like, so for example, with these blog posts, I now put much more effort into the preview blog posts. There's much more content in them than, in, than I might've done in the past, which means the final blog post is easy because I just steal content that I wrote from months ago. So I put those in the bank, which means they can be withdrawn at low cost. So I try and do uh, things like that so that in my, um, uh, what's the word, the, the times, um, the crunch times, that the amount of my own effort that I have isn't 100%. It's like 150% because I can pull on the past. Uh, so th that's just one technique for scaling during crunch periods. And Rich, you're really big into writing, um, both specifying and technical writing, right? Um, so content creation is massive, a massively important thing, part of your job and kind of part of your workflow. How do you schedule that? Like, how do you think about, um, organizing the content you're going to write, getting it into a schedule? Do you have a process or a, a kind of a pattern for that? Or is it? Yeah. Well, so this won't necessarily impress people, but I don't schedule anything. Um, I, I uh, the, yeah, the, don't, don't do what I do. Um, so I don't, um, I largely don't write down notes and I don't use a calendar. Um, I'm just one of those people. I love it. Yeah. Hardly, I'm hardly an advocate for that. So I'm not just in, broke every single PM listening to this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what I do is I just have a, I guess you would say a sixth sense of, I need to start this now. And then I ignore a ton of stuff. Um, you know, I, the, my email response rate goes way down. Uh, I start skipping out on meetings. Um, and, uh, and then I just, I guess this is kind of more like cave dev type mentality. I then just start writing uh, or coding if that's what the, the task requires until I kind of finish and then I come out of, come out of the cave. And if people need me, they'll ask me. And it's not like I cancel all meetings. I just, they have to be, I only go to the super high value ones or where I know I'll be explicitly you know, missed. Hearing this though, gives me a sense of comfort because that I, as a designer, I actually work in a very similar way. So when I do design work, it's like I disappear. It's like you said, what cave developing or cave designing. It's like, I just go into like a period of, I just can't focus on anything else. <laughs> yeah. Meetings get turned down. I don't, and I'm not super note oriented either. Like I'm not really note driven. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It just, it just is nice to hear from somebody that somebody else kind of works like that. Yeah. Meetings are such a drain. 
I'm, I'm not gonna lie. Like, as a PM, like we have that kind of a uh, again uh, more, more of a misconception. Like all you do is meetings. But like I actually would not mind not having meetings. It always has to be a thirty minute meeting, right? Why can't yeah. it be a five minute meeting? Why can't it be an email? A um, couple more thoughts. There is. Um, I, I was listening to a podcast uh, some let's let's say two years ago. Might even have been longer ago on deep thinking. And uh, I found, uh, and I'm not an expert on that topic, but uh, I found that concept mind-blowing, and or that might not even be the right word, because, um, you know, when you're always in this, like, interrupt-driven type of approach, it means you're only using, like, 10% of your brain cycles. And this is actually, I used to be a manager, um, but I, I got out of that business. And the reason was is because... I feel like in that role, I was only using like 10% of my brain. I was never able to like bring a ton of insight to the table as it relates to the product. And I, I frankly, I wasn't necessarily the best manager to start with. Um, so like I found that deeply unsatisfying. But then, you know, when I do this like cave, cave writing um, uh, type thing, like I know that I'm like hitting well into like 80% of my capability uh, because like I'm able to just discover things through the writing process that are non-obvious. So that's what I do. How do you say Which, no without pissing people off? Because that, that's, I think that's, that's another area here where, you know, you, you need that focus time, you need that deep work time. But at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm sure at your level, with your scope of work, there's a lot of demands on your time where people want to meet with you to talk about things. They want to meet with you to get your input. How do you balance that out and say no? So it's it's actually easy. Um, it's all about being, it's two things. One is about being intentional. Um, that, that helps you avoid being wishy-washy. Like th those two things are kind of polar opposites. And then the other one is about having clarity on the importance of your work. So for example, uh, if I'm not clear on the importance of my work, then how could I expect you to have a strong appreciation for my work? So whereas the converse is, is if I can describe why this work item that I want to go cave dev on, uh, is super important. If I can explain that to you, then you can develop an appreciation for that. And then it means that you better understand the opportunity cost. And we can actually be on the same page on this proposition. Rich, I wanted to circle back around to an earlier comment you had about, um, you know, you had this role, you had actually stepped into a manager role. And I think that this is going to be really interesting for some of our mid-level listeners because there's this train of thought that like you have to, in order for ha you to have a good career development, you need to step into a management role. Um, managing other people usually has like a bigger title. It's going to bring a bigger paycheck um, and thus bigger influence on the product. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Like career development as an, going really deep and, and mastering it as an individual contributor or again, going that management route. Like you said, for you, it wasn't very fulfilling. Yeah. Uh, so I have two, a couple thoughts on that. Um, one is, uh, I think there's actually three roles. Uh, one of the roles always gets missed. So there's the IC role, individual contributor, and then there's the manager role. That, that was kind of baked into your question. So we know that. There's a third role. 
leader. Um, and it can apply to either the manager or the individual contributor. So I think th um, the thing that people should decide is which one of those three roles that they want. Uh, because, yeah, so um, basically what I see is there's individual contributors who are doers, and then there's some that are leaders. And then on the management side, there are some managers that are leaders and some that are executors, um, which is a form of doing. But it's when I say executor, they basically they are doers on the scope of a whole team. So they basically own the schedule, crack the whip, make sure that their team is executing on a given plan. Um, and so. So that's actually four roles, if you look at the kind of. Mm -hmm. cross product of IC manager and and leader. Um, so I think you should th pick the thing that you think that you will be most good at uh, uh, across those um, because you know um, like people like you said, some people think they need to be managers, but are you going to be a better manager or a better IC because being a poor manager, for example, will mean you'll have limited career growth within that role. So, you know, pick the thing that you're good at. Uh, We've probably all had people that have come from a, they're a really strong IC or a leader even and moved into management, right? And they don't have the same skill set. Like they are totally different jobs. Managing yeah. people versus doing the, the technical job that you usually do. Yeah. I, I guess, though, the one thing I will say is, so I've been a manager like three different times. Um having been a manager um, enables me to be a better IC. Um, I have a much better appreciation for how the organization functions and what the organization wants. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, is that having been a manager, the higher level managers trust me more. Uh, and the reason is, is managers are trusted with um, private content um, it's less about strategy and more about people. And so I get trusted with more content uh, about the idiosyncrasies of the organization than I otherwise would because I have exhibited um, that right trust level before. Can you share with us some of the takeaways that you've learned from your time as a manager? You said there were a couple things that you, yeah. you noticed that when you became a manager. It's like, wait, I need that kind of fix my IC contributions to match up with that. Yeah. The easiest one is how the review process works. Um, so like none of it's complicated, but if you fully understand how um, a given talent review, uh, how that plays out, then you understand what it is you need to do to better align your performance over the year with such a review process. Like, it's not mysterious, but it, it, it gives you a better sense of, um, yeah, to play I guess that, I'll just leave it how at How to that. play that game, right? How to, how to yeah, it's not a game, it. though. Like, it's, it's, it's super practical and objective. Um, you know, it, 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 I don't know what it's like at other companies. I can only speak about Microsoft. But it really comes down to impact. 
both impact and how you achieve that impact within the the scope of a bunch of other people. So then you're in, so you're at Amazon, right? You're new in your career at Amazon, and so that's a really impact driven focused job. How does it how is it contrasted a little bit with Microsoft, like on what they're focusing on? No, I think it resonates exactly with what Rich is calling out. It's a matter of what was your impact on the product? Was your impact on kind of the the revenue side of things, right? Because one of the things that I've learned and how to do is better focus on things like revenue and how many dollars you drive for the product and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to not how many specs you wrote or how many emails you wrote or how many you know conversations on Twitter you had. It's a matter of what was your impact on product. So I, I think it's in that regard, it's pretty much the same. You, you're objectively looking at what has this individual done for the broader product, the broader team, the broader organization. Yeah. And so, Rich, to, to that extent, when we talk about, you know, the things you learn as a manager, things you learn as, as an IC, uh, the, the conversation that actually kind of spurred our uh, podcast episode was around spe- specialization or being a generalist. Uh, tell us more your thoughts on that subject, because I think there is kind of two philosophies uh, where one is folks believe that you have to be super specialized to be successful in your career. So, for example, somebody that is the expert machine learning engineer, they are heads down in that one topic, they know everything about it. And then there's the other train of thought where it says, well, you should have this kind of broad spectrum of knowledge where, yes, you know machine learning, but you also know things like, uh, you know, cognitive psychology, and then you have an understanding of, uh, you know, the product market. How has that worked for you? And what is your personal philosophy on that subject? Uh, Yeah. So I guess maybe um, some of it relates to where you find yourself. Like, so um, if you are a specialist, then you're probably going to try and leverage that skill as much as possible and then go into, you know, projects that, uh, you know, where that that, uh, specialty is an advantage. If you find yourself as a generalist, then um, you're probably going to uh, do best on projects where um, like this general view that you have is an advantage and where specialty skills are are less important. So I guess that's one part. Where do you find yourself? Um, but my, yeah, my view is uh, particularly, you know, and also dev versus PM is probably fairly relevant here. You know, I think devs definitely um, have a bit more advantage on specialty and PMs a bit more advantage on general generalists. But um, uh, so I, I'm a, I'm a proponent of, of generalists um, for sure. And so my argument that uh, I was kind of propping up on Twitter in this conversation was that the best combination, particularly for PM, I think, is generalists that have the foundation of, say, one to three specialties. And the thing that I didn't say on, on Twitter that I, I, I kind of thought about afterwards, um, this morning, actually, while I was thinking about us, us doing this, um, this talk, was what, what is the advantage of that? And so I'll, I'll just read out this sentence that I wrote. Um, well, actually, first... So a generalist, it can be boiled down to this phrase, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. That is that is um, uh, a boiled down version of that. So what, what would be the advantage of also having some specialties? So it's this sentence. Uh, 
Uh, a generalist who has some specialties has the superpower of lateral sight that will en enable them to see opportunities and problems that would not otherwise be within their visible spectrum. Uh, so clearly using the metaphors of the sight there. Yep. Uh, yeah, peripheral. Actually, that's maybe the word I was looking for is peripheral sight, not lateral. But I, you know, I think I came up with the word lateral because I guess it's the thing that's lateral is both the, the sight metaphor, but also this insight coming in at, you know, 45 or 90 degrees. Um, you know, I think that would be hard for a pure generalist to see. Um, and, that, and that's kind of, def it's the definition of this, uh, this sentence. So I, I came up with an example. So I'll just read the next sentence after that. And I, I'm sure we're going to share this doc, which is, um, uh, all right. Um, so this is my example. Specialist, specialists know about materials and tolerances. Um, a person with a specialty will ask about tolerances and domains in which they are not a specialist. So the, this isn't in the thing I wrote, but I was kind of thinking of the SpaceX example, which I also put in um, our Twitter thing, which is, I think someone who was a specialist in another domain would ask, like, you know, SpaceX has been doing all these pressure tests to, like, see, you know, it's like we've got this special steel 301 or whatever it's called, or 304, and they're trying to, like, see at the point at when they have these, like, cryogenic gases that they put under pressure, uh, when does the steel fail? And the uh, tolerance is often in terms of, like, uh, well, doesn't matter. So, um, you know, I think a specialist would be the, would ask about like different types of steel and the tolerances that we can expect with respect to the pressure that they can hold. And then they would kind of start to get a sense of, um, yeah, how far we can push these things, but they would ask these questions because they would have, they would have, um, touched this idea of tolerances in past projects. Whereas if, you don't have any specialty, you often don't know the questions to ask, let alone anything about the answers. Because then you have that surface level knowledge where it seems that you kind of know what you're talking about, but you really don't. And that's yeah. a dangerous point because when you have that little kind of, well, you know just enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be kind of the, be able to have an in-depth conversation, That that's where the fallacy comes in where generalist is probably less so about knowing everything but about being an expert that kind of what you're describing just being able to look from the right angle at the problem. Yeah, exactly. We've probably all had points in our career where we felt like we're generalists and then you get pressed into service as a specialist. I know that that certainly has happened for myself where I'm the only one maybe on a team that has like any sort of knowledge on a subject area. So then by default, you're like kind of, yeah, forced into it. Your hand is forced to be like, Oh, I will help with this, but I am not the expert. How do you do? How have you seen that shape up, Rich? Like in your career, even yeah. just other PMs, right? Uh, you know, I have I've, that has happened to me a number of times. I think I um, I definitely don't want to take upfront credit for being a specialist. Like I think there's a a tendency to like someone you know knights you as a, a specialist, and it's like, oh, okay, well, I'm I'm feeling more important in the organization now because of because of that 
that is like super dangerous ground. And I, I reject that. So like if, if, you know, my VP, for example, is going to do that, I'm going to be super clear right from that point, which is here is the scope of my knowledge domain. I'm happy to go do this job. If you and I both accept upfront what the, what that knowledge, both that, what that knowledge gap is that I have, I'm, I'm happy to go spend some time on doing some more research, but if you expect me to deliver a high quality product in a short amount of time, then I want you to know up front that that's not going to work and maybe I'll decline. So you're going back to the point of actually being able to say no, because I think that's yeah. that's another we're talking about all these kind of policies and traps where it's very easy to say yes to things because you don't want to disappoint people. You want to make sure that, you know, you can prove yourself in the area. But if you don't have enough expertise, you can probably damage more than you can help. Yeah, because it actually boils down to lying is really, you know, <laughs> because there's a, a false premise in place. And, um, you know, like it's, it's almost like you're trying to get a short term gain uh on a false premise and you know there's there's just tears after that so, so it's go ahead yeah no and to that extent i'm actually curious what's your litmus test for understanding kind of what do you need to be an expert on or to build expertise on versus things where you having kind of the baseline knowledge is enough what's your like how do you determine that sure um, I think a lot has to do with who else is going to be with me on the project. So like, uh, there's, there's a, a few devs, for example, that I've worked with a ton of times and, uh, they know actually, yeah, this is, this is awesome. They know what I know and don't know. And I also kind of know what they know and don't know. And, um, this is a tiny bit off topic, but, um, one of the things that I find amazing and this, this is only something that happens when you've worked with a set of people for a very long time. I will ask someone a question, one of these people that I know super well, and they, I, I know that they are customizing their answer to me. Like they are fitting their answer to these, the knowledge that I have and the gaps that I have. And they like are fitting it into that exact missing hole. Um, but going back to your question is, if I'm working with people that I know and I trust and I feel like as a group that we can satisfy this answer in a reasonable amount of time, even though I might be a pure generalist on this one, I will probably accept the job because of the group dynamics that I, that raises my confidence. Uh, if it's by myself, um, then I think the question, uh, the first thing I would do is, um, going back to writing, uh, if I feel like I could write a doc that captures the problem space and captures what the right questions are, then I might move forward because then I will probably be able to suss out the rest from the organization, even if people aren't explicitly tied to working with me on this project. If I don't think I can do that thing, adequately describe the problem and the right questions, then I probably won't take the job because it means I'm like a feather in the wind. Like there, there's nothing, there's no truth 
that I that I hold within me that's helping me help helping me navigate the space. It's interesting too because what you're calling out earlier about people tailoring their answers to what you know, what you don't know, that actually is on a like at a high level, it's hard to do because it seems like they they have to have that kind of inside knowledge almost of what you know, to what extent you know, to what extent you dove dip deep into a topic because it, it requires kind of, a, I, I, is, does it require a long-term collaboration or is it something that people can develop fairly quickly? I think it requires a long-term collaboration. Because you can't just write a readme that says, here's the topics that I don't know. I know nothing about assembly or compilers and like fill me in on those. Yeah, and, and usually the missing gap is, like three levels of detail below those words that you just said. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think there's two things, actually. One is um, uh, a long working history together and a lot of experience. But the other one is um, a level of caring and kindness. Because, um, like, someone could say to me, like, totally give me the... Well, I guess you just proved you're an idiot again. Um, <laughs> treatment. And uh, the people I work with don't do that. Um, they know that I have, I have, my question tells them that I care about the thing that they work on and I want to learn more. And they, um, their positivity uh, in answering it and, and no shame, whatever the right word is for that, uh, in the way that they answer it is their um, their reaction to me in that positive reaction to them. That's fascinating. So I want to actually get back to a topic that uh, we kind of briefly touched on. And you're a prolific writer. You you write a lot in terms of blog posts, specifications. Um, what helped you develop that skill? Or what is the approach that helps you become a better writer over time? Because I think that's that's a challenge that is, you know, I, I know, for example, I can speak from my own experience. Amazon is very big on writing. Everything is a what's called a PRFAQ or the uh, public relations uh, press release and frequently asked questions, essentially, where you have to write out the, the, the description of a feature or a product that you're building from the perspective of what your customer will see how they will perceive it, what kind of questions they will ask. So you have to kind of work backwards. Um, in your career, what helped you develop those skills to kind of put things on paper, put things in writing in a concise and clear way that makes others understand what you're talking about? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, one huge advantage that I have is, uh, so I didn't spend a lot of time talking about my university education, but it's it's germane at this moment. Uh, so I went to um, University of Waterloo in uh, Canada, and um, I studied, um, there were three things I was interested in high school, uh, political science, computer science, and English. And I kind of studied all three uh, at Waterloo, uh, but I ended up settling on a English major in English rhetoric and professional writing. And then... Um, I didn't do a minor in CS, but we had this thing that you had to do. You had to pick an intensive study area in another topic, and I chose CS for that. Um, you know, I'd had a bulletin board, a pirate bulletin board in high school. Like, I was very familiar with computers. 
um, uh, you know, ran OS2 in high school. Um, so I definitely have a, a, a writing background in a professional sense from school, so that helps. And um, the rhetoric part was actually, to a large degree, the most important because um, what rhetoric is, is manipulating human emotions, uh, human reactions. Um, I, I use these terms at work like manipulation. People hate terms like that. They, they find a, oh, they really hate it. Um, it it's I, true, though. It I, yeah, true. I, it I embrace it words. It sounds deceiving, right? Almost. Yeah, it does. It does. But, you know, I think it doesn't have to be deceiving. It's all about affecting the reaction beyond just the the facts um people would probably appreciate that wording a little better um but um so i think um i'm actually a better writer now than i was when i graduated and uh, i think the the reason is is because i have a i have a more refined sense of what my goals are now so I started out with writing about things like I would often as part of writing have to learn a topic. Like, so for example, I just published the .NET 5.0 RC2 blog post and there's a whole section on pattern matching there. I had used pattern matching before, but I wanted to write about it in a more holistic sense, which means I needed, so I was a generalist on pattern matching. I needed to develop more specialty on that. And over, I guess last weekend, uh, I wrote up a bunch of samples on pattern matching and developed more specialty there. But I wrote it from the perspective of not knowing pattern matching so that it would it would um, most kind of target with people who were in that same state that I was in before. So I think that's a fairly natural thing. The additional kind of goal that I developed over time, and this is something that I've started talking about at Microsoft more more about lately and i actually have a tweet that i can share with you later it's about narrative and you know the narrative that i want to impart and and tell is about uh the product that i work on being both leading and topical uh you know topical meaning it's it's addressing the problems of the day and so the wording that i'm trying to use much more uh lately is, um, is is along these lines. So both still targeting the the, the language should, con should connect with people that are learning, that are new to say pattern matching, but then I should also be describing it as being useful for today's problems and being super capable. So uh, the, yeah, the short answer is, is uh, I think your writing has to connect with some set of goals. It's not just about pure facts. And I've refined my goals over time. And as a result, I think my writing is better. So our listeners that are, you know, younger in their careers, it sounds like you really believe that that rhetoric background was um, kind of essential to your success. And it, I think it's a common, it's a very common course of study too in most universities now, right? I mean, I mean, for a long time it has been, a core part of studies. Where would somebody, I mean, let's say that you're in your career and you want to get started. Do you still keep up on that uh, type of study yourself? Um, have you stayed close to kind of looking into rhetoric and? Um, 
Yes and no. I mean, I, I, um, I haven't actually, I don't think I've written a single additional book on the topic. I think it's that, um, my appreciation for the domain has increased over time and we are like subjected to rhetoric every single day. I mean, as you know, um, there's an election coming up in, uh, less than a month in America and, um, you know, the, the, the written and verbal discussion from these leaders, uh, if we, if we can call all of them that, um, uh, is, is just packed full of rhetoric. It's almost nothing but rhetoric. And so, you know, I think, I think the thing to do as someone who's a practitioner of that is to try and break apart and boil down what they're saying into like, is it rhetoric leaning on falsehood? Or is it um, truth that's kind of being, um, what's the word, tilted towards a particular interpretation? So, you know, I think um, part part of the problem we we find in today's democracies now we're now we're really getting to a different topic is that lots of people don't have the pre- appreciation for one versus the other. Uh, like, so what the, what the thing that I tweeted, I th- this is going to be super relevant is narrative spectrum. It goes from unimpeachable truth to fantastic falsehoods. And it's like a five or six point scale. Um, so just by being part of the, uh, of a society, not just America, but any country, you are a student of rhetoric, um, and you can choose to um uh to really appreciate what's being said or just take it on face value that that's a, a choice you're given every day i think it ties down to kind of the need to be able to like you said to essentially dissect it and understand what exactly is the intended goal of that rhetoric right because it's it's very easy to kind of take a message at face value because that's kind of you know inherently we are to some extent, as humans, overall, we're lazy. We want to take the information and just take totally. it as is, right? Like, you, you don't want to spend too much time processing and understanding it. So you take it and say, great, this is how it is. But sometimes you also get into these uh, modes where the message is tailored to a specific audience and how, do you ex- how exactly you have to tailor that message. What is the intended side effect of that? How, what are the consequences of that? And it's, it's hard to take a step back and say, okay, well, give me a second to actually process this and try to take a look at it from a different angle. So in your experience, what do you do to kind of look at rhetoric, both kind of outside and at work and kind of under- try to kind of dissect and understand the the desired outcomes for what's being said? What's your approach to that? Uh, it's very similar to this thing that we already discussed about giving, being, potentially accepting a project uh, that requires more specialized skills in deciding if I'm going to take it or not. And what I said there is I need to be able to articulate the problem domain and what the questions are. So if I was to take, um, a given statement by say Trump or Biden, just to, to stick with that example, um, you know, I think the question or the, um, I would, 
need to be able to like, all right, yeah. Perfect example is this whole discussion about voter fraud due to uh, mail-in voting, like super topical. Um, and, you know, I live in Washington state uh, where we only have mail-in voting. So that's actually an interesting layer on top of the, the whole thing. And no one talks about voter fraud in Washington. Like it's a complete non-conversation. So I think in order for me to kind of develop an opinion on that, I would um, start to talk about what the merits might be of the idea that voter fraud is super prevalent um, for mail-in voting. So I would write that down, try and come up with like a three-point or a six-point list. And like you know, this is kind of going into theory here, but I think the idea is you actually would take that to its extreme. Like if you can't come up with um, super likely cases where um, voter fraud is likely to be a problem, then go to the more extreme cases um, because that's actually a an objective um you know, sophisticated approach for dealing with that. And then if you find that you've only come up with extreme cases where voter fraud might exist, then it is very suggestive that it's not actually a problem. But just completely rejecting the idea on its merits actually doesn't bring you any additional knowledge because then you cannot um, use that as an argument with another person. Whereas, like, if we had another person on this call who was believed that there was voter voter fraud is super prevalent with mail-in ballots, then I would say, okay, well, here's this one-page document I wrote. These are the scenarios where I came up with where I think mail-in mail uh, fraud with mail-in voting might occur. And then I would say, do you do you agree with those? And they would probably say yes. But I say, well, you have a stronger conviction on this than I do by virtue of what you said, um, I can't get to that conviction with these three extreme points. So you must have some more points that are more concrete and likely than mine. Please fill them in. So that's how that would go. So it's interesting that you're taking the approach of when you have these kind of almost conflicting ideas, you almost need this kind of dual channel input. It's, yeah. it's not about, you know, it's very hard to convince somebody that they're wrong or that they are not, you know, accounting for certain factors by just saying, "No, you're wrong. Here's what my facts are, and deal with it." Because that that will never what, work. What about when you're not dealing with talking about wrong and right? It's just like let's come to a good consensus. Like I'm not particularly passionate about. You know what I'm saying? Like maybe we're well, both. Not I think special. that's what I described because yeah. I never used the word wrong and right. I I right, used the right. words likely and unlikely. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to catch there. Is like there's a difference there. Like trying to ar win an argument is. <laughs> uh, and I guess, yeah, taken into any argument, you're coming in with an open mind where you can be wrong yourself. You just are not accounting for certain factors that other people might have that you don't have. But yeah. that being said, it's even taking this to the context of product management, design, engineering, like we have these conversations on a daily basis when it comes to prioritization, when it comes to deciding what needs to be built, what needs to be cut. When, uh, you know, and especially in these kind of topics, it's uh, everyone will have an opinion. And as product people, we know for a fact that, you know, that there's going to be a 
tens of people that will say that I absolutely need this. This is nothing else is as high priority as this when put this problem in front of other PMs and they'll tell you, oh, this makes no sense. We don't need this at all. Yeah. So I can, I can speak to, I can tie a couple things together. Um, so uh, I like the idea of right and wrong not being the interesting question. That's actually false dichotomy. Um, so if I think about the conversations that we have at Microsoft, they're close to what you just said, Dan, but slightly different. Um, often what it is, is, um, opportunity versus cost versus risk and opportunity, you know, there's a spectrum there between actual opportunity and opportunity cost, um, cost cost uh, relates again to opportunity cost but also time to market and then risk relates to um, a little bit to opportunity cost again but also to um, like our ability to bring a new scenario to market without negatively impacting ones that have already been determined to be successful Uh, it could also be the case that um, currently we have more of a moat, um, and this feature while improving the product might actually reduce the moat. Um, uh, so for those who don't know about moat, that just means competitive advantage. Uh, another one might be, um, with the way the product is currently, there's no legal risk. If we add this this particular aspect to the product, we take on more legal risk and might uh, impair the product as a whole. So that's kind of how I, I think about things. So that's that's definitely not the 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 um, good and bad or true false dichotomy. It's it's basically this idea that there's a few dimensions at play that overlap in in both intuitive and in unintuitive ways. And uh, this actually maybe ties us a little bit back to the generalist versus specialist thing. I think um, it can be hard for pure generalists to like fully appreciate all of the dimensions and all of the ways in which they overlap. And also to necessarily, like in order to fully evaluate all of those dimensions, you have to understand what your goals are. Because the goals are the things that help you help you do that. Um, yeah. And I think that the other part of that too is that you need to understand the goals of the people that you're talking to or the people that you're working with. Because yes. they might have goals that are orthogonal to what you're actually trying to achieve. So understanding the goals from your perspective and ignoring the goals of others is, I, I think it can be a recipe for a lot of conversations that are not necessary. Yeah, this is part of the way I use rhetoric is... Um, uh, rhetoric only works if you understand your audience. Um, like, uh, in my early specs, I actually got this feedback, uh, at Microsoft, which was know your audience. And I did not, even though I had this degree already, I didn't fully appreciate what that meant. Like the words are incredibly simple to understand. Um, but there's a ball that really has to drop for you to grasp that at depth and I, I think I have now um, so I always write for an audience um, and I actually think you know I've actually gotten really positive feedback from my coworkers um, 
one of my coworkers actually just a few days ago said like, uh, yeah, we need to get Rich involved because he knows how to write documents for senior management, <laughs> uh, which I took as a compliment. Um, but it's because, you know, you know, you need to understand what it is that they care about and understand what are the levers by which you can influence them, but also to which they will allow themselves to be influenced. Because this is, this is where this, um, what was the word I used? Manipulation word is both correct and incorrect at the same time. Because I think if you're to do this with honesty, like I would not write something for, I would not try and manipulate my, my leaders in a way that I thought was disingenuous, like to deceive them. I would intentionally influence on them on things that I think that they want to be influenced on. Um, well, it's the level of abstraction, right? Because you're thinking through the, the real facts of a product, of a customer need, of what your market is saying that you need to build. But then your manager cares about maybe the more in-depth details. Your VP cares about the business side of things and how this is going to affect the bottom line. And then the VP's manager probably cares even at a higher level how this ties into the, the, the entire platform. And they do not care about the way you're going to implement this or what kind of performance metrics you get. So tailoring that is, uh, I'd say it's like, it's tricky, but in your case, what helped you build that understanding of what your audience is expected at different levels? Because I think that, especially for people early in their career, right? When you talk about tailoring for your audience, like, how do I know what my VP actually cares about? Like, what are the points that help you? Yeah, so I'm a super careful watcher. Um, I, and then I watch what everyone does around me. And uh, at least for people that I think I'm going to get good signal. And that's both success and failure. It's a little, a little bit more biased towards the success side, but there's a ton of signal from failures. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, this, this actually goes, uh, I'm going to go back to these notes that I wrote because, um, this, I, I think ties super quickly. So the, the question I asked in, in this note was, you know, you find yourself as a generalist with no specialties. Um, is that a problem? Not exactly, but it might be a headwind to growth. So what should you do? And I, I wrote three points, which I think directly go to your question. So the first one is um, pick a domain in which you have, you know, interest or like a strong business association and spend outsized time on that, either on business time or your personal time. But um, developing a specialty is super useful and you got to you got to invest the time to make it happen. Um, then this next one is the one that's kind of talking to what we were talking about, which is uh, look for opportunities and problems that others see or exhibit and reverse engineer how they got there. Um, if you can't figure it out, ask them. If you do figure it out, feel free to still ask them to validate your um, your kind of conclusion. Uh, so I do this part a lot. Uh, like sometimes our our leaders make decisions that are surprising to me, and that's a gift. Um, well, like let let's assume the decision they they're they're making is virtuous. Again, I didn't say right. Um, 
what was the context that they had that caused them to make that decision potentially quickly that you do not have? Because let's let let's not start with the idea that they you have uh, 105 IQ and they have 115. That's useless. Uh, a useless line of thinking. Um, it they have context or experience that you're missing, and what is that? Find find that thing out. Um, and then the next one, and this one is way more subtle, is look for successes and failures like. This now we're talking more about business successes and business failures, and which ones of those were inherent, which ones were by chance, and which ones were ones that were uh, like for the successes not guaranteed, but somehow the team steered their way to success in an uncertain place, and also with failures, which ones of those were also not they were avoidable failures, but somehow they still ended up in that failure trap. So this is the most interesting one because successes that are inherent are not ones that you can easily learn from. So uh, I'm trying to think, I have an example in my head, but it's, it's not appropriate to tell. Um, like basically successes that just bank on past successes, um, like, yeah, there's very little to learn from that. It's these ones where, you steered your way through the complex minefield and got the success or were unable to, or maybe it's that there weren't that many mines in the minefield, but somehow you still found failure. Those are the ones you should look for to get the insight. Um, and as I said before, you can talk to these people, tell them I've been, I've been looking at this, at the thing you did as a case study. Um, this is this is the, these are the conclusions that I found from looking outside. Help me refine this with the view that you have. And if they're not willing to talk about it, well, then just leave them alone. Find someone else to talk to. That that part in, in itself is probably why we love conversations such as the one with yourself because it helps us reverse engineer your success and see exactly what we can replicate and what we can learn. And I'm sure our listeners can too. Um, so I, I know we're getting a time, so I want to be respectful of everyone's commitments. Uh, Rich, where can people find you online if they want to learn more from you? <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm uh, runfaster2000 on, um, on Twitter. Uh, that's, that's probably the best place. I mean, I'm, I'm on GitHub too, but I'm not sure anyone uh, wants to see my coding out there. Um, and, you know, I, the place where I write the most is the, the .NET blog. Um, I have some designs in GitHub on uh, the .NET slash designs repo. Uh, it's a little bit hard to tell which ones I wrote um, just because um, I don't think I put my name on all of them. And, uh, and uh, Emo changed the folder structure, so it actually broke some of the authorship. Um, Thanks, Emo. Yeah. Um, let's just say the community wasn't super enthused by, by that particular change either. But um, yeah, Twitter and the .NET blog are the best places to look. Excellent. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Uh, Rich, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your deep, deep wisdom on a lot of topics. And we hope to have you on the show again sometime soon. Yeah, sounds good. I, I appreciate the, the opportunity. and I love talking with you folks. All right. Thanks, folks. See you next time.